Hello there, Catherine Robinson here, and welcome to Extra. It's lovely to have your company each Monday. But now to the buzzword well-being. Earlier this month, the Victoria government amended the child safety standards to include well-being. This set of standards are used across schools, preschools and daycares in the state. I guess it effectively legislates well-being. Victoria has also committed $200 million to place well-being leaders in all public primary schools and low-fee-paying private schools in a bid to arrest the escalating rates of adolescent mental health problems. But how do you define well-being? And even more importantly, how's it achieved and what role do teachers have in all of this? And what about their well-being? Well, to take us through some of the complexities, I'm pleased to welcome Dr Annie Gowing, who is a senior lecturer and student wellbeing specialisation leader from the University of Melbourne. She's also written an interesting article on the issue for The Conversation. And Helen Agua, who is the principal of Perth College, an Anglican school for girls. She's also recently penned a piece for The Australian on the importance of teacher wellbeing. Well, welcome to you both. Annie, first to you and these new child standards out of Victoria. They seem very much to be a reflection, if you like, of shifting community expectations towards a wellness-focused culture. But I know you've got some concerns about these standards. What are they? Well, they're not about the standards. They're about the fact that well-being has suddenly appeared in them. Um, and I'll, I'll just sort of draw our attention to the second standard, which suddenly is saying child safety and well-being is embedded in organisational leadership, governance and culture. And similarly, in the Standard 6, we um, find they're talking about um, child safety and wellbeing values in practice. And this is highly problematic because, uh, as I'm sure this uh, discussion will surface, that wellbeing is is difficult to define. And if it's suddenly in a piece of legislation, as it is in these standards, what does that then require schools to do? Mm. And that's the problem. Yeah, well, that's the problem. Difficult to to define, but impossible, Annie. I mean, the World Health Organization speaks about health as being more than merely the absence of illness. Its definition includes holistic well-being across numerous domains, um, but yes. stops short really of nominating a single definition, doesn't it? You've just there acknowledged it's complex, it's multifaceted. Some researchers have even mm. characterised it as a wicked problem. So where mm. where can we begin to start in defining it? I think, um, look, I'm going to, given um, we're talking about the Victorian uh, child safe standards, I'm actually going to um, give you the definition that the Victorian Department of Education uses. And I think that's important because we need to look at how um, our education departments and more broadly um, our policy frameworks are defining this. And so here in Victoria, it's defined as the development of the capabilities to thrive, contribute and respond positively to challenges and opportunities of life. Now, that's one of thousands of definitions, but it's the one that frames up how educators in 
Victoria um, uh, led to understand this this concept. It's not, I, I think there's problems with that definition um, because challenges and opportunities are not equally distributed and it frames wellbeing as very much an individual state. And I think that's um, that's that's not correct. I favour um, more recent ecological understandings of well-being, as it as, as it's something that is deeply embedded within um, young people's families, within their schools, within their communities, their social networks, their neighbourhoods, and so that brings us invites us to see it as something much more fluid and volatile and um, very much shaped by the, the sort of social context um, in which young people live their lives. Mm. Well, Helen, as a principal of Perth College, a private Anglican schools, a school for girls, uh, sorry, excuse me, a private Anglican school, um, how do you define wellness? I know that you have wellness programs at your school, but have you struggled with this idea as well and where might you have landed? Look, uh, I agree with Annie. Defining wellbeing is extremely challenging. Um, we have an inside-out program and we've, we've actually created our own, I guess, definition and it's based on the work of Martin Seligman. So we've gone with the PERMA model um, and we look at wellbeing as positive emotion, engagement, relationship, meaning, accomplishment, but we've also added health and, and that covers physical and psychological. So we really are trying to cover as many areas and angles of wellbeing as we possibly can. You mentioned that Inside Out program. Can you tell me a little bit about that? How is it embedded into the, the school uh, curriculum or the school culture? Mm. So Inside Out, we've uh, been working with Inside Out for the better part of uh, 10 years. It's our framework and it runs from pre-kindy to year 12. It, it is a wellbeing and self-leadership framework that we use at the school. Scoped right from the early years where we start with just emotional recognition um, with the littlies um, using kamochis and teddies and then uh, working our way up to other issues like uh, friendship fires, conflict, confidence, resilience, and then right up to year 11 and 12, where we're now doing a bold program, which is based on the work of Brené Brown. So, you know, quite detailed, but been going for 10 years. So a lot of work has really um, been put in and a lot of research. Yeah. So 10 years, I imagine you've had some time to measure the results. What are you seeing as a result of a program like Inside Out? Absolutely. So uh, we use Assessing Wellbeing in Education, so the OR surveys, and we've been tracking it for a number of years. And look, we're never going to get perfection, but what we have seen is um, some pretty good growth in our students when compared to, um, you know, national figures and just seeing improvement and growth. And, and that's what we aim for. Um, perfection is not what we're we're trying to, to get. We actually think that's probably a, a very negative um, message to be putting out there, but growth is fantastic. I know, Helen, at your school, you have a director of wellbeing for the overall school and a head of wellbeing in the junior school. But Annie, if I can ask you about the Victoria model, what do you expect the wellness leaders to be doing in, in primary schools there in that state? 
Well, I, I think um, they have a range of um, roles and and that's just one role within a school. The, the mental health and wellbeing coordinators um, is a pilot program. We have primary welfare officers. We have student wellbeing coordinators in secondary schools. So there are a number of roles that are dedicated this this work. I think any money we can provide to support people in these roles is is well spent. The problem, I think, is how we support people to do that work. That's where some of the challenges come. Questions around how they are trained into those roles. New mental health and wellbeing coordinator roles have a a substantial series of training modules sitting behind that pilot program. But in a lot of other cases, people fall into these roles because they're very talented teachers. They have great capacity to um, establish relationships with young people. And so they... um, you know, gravitate towards these kind of this kind of work in schools. But then when they're in those roles, we often don't provide them with ongoing training. We don't provide them with ongoing support. People in these roles are privy to all sorts of disclosures about the pain and, and um, distress and trauma that young people experience in their lives. But you did mm. highlight there that often, and we saw this, I think, during the pandemic very much so, that teachers did more than just teach. They kind of def- went into default mode of looking after from this yes. perspective of, of, of students. But we know that the Australian professional standards for teachers emphasise student wellbeing is important to learning, but they note teachers' main priority is making sure the student learns at their stage of the national curriculum. Mm-hmm. So I guess what is what is more in, important here? I mean, are teachers signing up for something that they're, are they signing up for something that they're, they're not prepared for, if you like? Look, I, I, I think it's unhelpful to have that sort of binary between teaching and well-being or learning and well-being. I think teachers do well-being work all the time and always have. Mm-hmm. That um, great teachers um, uh, build relationships with their students. Great teachers understand their students. Great teachers listen to their students. Great teachers are passionate about what they teach. And all of those things contribute to a young person's well-being. Mm. You know, lots of studies have asked young people, what makes a great teacher? What ha- What's happening in your class when you are getting on with the teacher, when your learning's going well, when you're okay with things? And, you know, it's that kind of, it's it's um, it's those little things which uh, um, Bruce Johnson um, named um, some years ago teachers who listen, teachers who are passionate about their teaching, teachers who intervene when they see something problematic happening, teachers who notice, teachers who get to know their students outside the student role. We would see all that as, you know, just part and parcel of teaching work, but it also is wellbeing work. And I think we don't have to suggest that, oh, here's our teaching and now here's a whole set of other things we have to do to address well-being. Mm. Yes, there are a whole bunch of other things that sometimes need to happen and that's not done by teachers alone. That's when um, community supports, when family, when when a whole range of other uh, other people step in to do this work 
collaboratively. But teachers do wellbeing work every day when they're in their classrooms. Well, Helen, let me ask you about your teachers. Is that how how they go about their business? They teach as well as inherently have wellbeing at the back of their mind? Absolutely. I think that the learning and teaching, the wellbeing go hand in hand. Um, and if you have students who are well and teachers who are well, um, that's that's when it works. Um, teachers have been doing wellbeing forever. It's the reason we come into teaching. You know, it's that deeper meaning of wanting to make a difference to really help students, uh, you know, discover who they are, become confident, become resilient. And in doing that, doing really well in their learning and teaching. Um, but Annie makes a very good point about two things, um, the partnerships between families, students and school. I think that that is um, when the magic happens, when you have a community that works together and values wellbeing and definitely the support for teachers because it's becoming more complex. So the commitment to develop teachers and give them those supports is super important for them to feel well and equipped to be able to support their students. Is the magic happening all the time though, Helen? You know, where you've got the the triumvirate, if you like, between the student, the families and, and the schools? No, I, I don't think so. Um, look, I'm, I'm very privileged. I work in a community where our families are amazing and, and really speak the language with us. But we have to acknowledge that different contexts different socioeconomic pressures for schools and schools are doing absolutely the best they can but there are different challenges for different schools and uh, perfection is uh, just not going to happen. Mm. Going to the point of uh, well-being for your teachers, uh, Helen, that Annie spoke to just then, how do you ensure that their wellness is being looked after so the students are also being looked after in that holistic manner? I think the first step, Catherine, is to actually um, have the courage to have the conversation as an organisation. Um, you know, it, it really does take courage because once you start having that wellbeing conversation with your staff, you know, there's going to be good and bad and leaders have to be open to having the conversation. Once the conversation starts, then you can start actually working through what do my staff need in this context and what can and can't we do? But you've got to have that first conversation, have that courage. Mm. Well, we know that there was a Monash University survey of uh, just mm. under 2,500 primary and secondary teachers across Australia that revealed almost 60%, 60% were planning to leave the pr- pr- profession. We know it takes five years to train a teacher and they're leaving or that, that amount is leaving just as quickly. Um, so having those discussions key. I, I believe that, Helen, you've got an, an assessing wellbeing tool for your yes. staff. How's that helped you? look after them? So this year it's actually been very successful because um, we've really um, pushed the wellbeing of staff and so the results this year showed us that our staff are 30% less likely. So in terms of comparing the stats, you know, that was quite heartening. They do feel more valued at school but that doesn't mean we're perfect. You know, there's a lot of work to be done um, and like I said, it takes courage to really have the conversation Mm. and to see what can be done. So Annie, why do you think we're seeing so many teachers leaving the profession? Is it it just post-COVID or has this been building for a while? I think we have to acknowledge that um, the last couple of years have certainly contributed to a a real dip in, in teachers' own well-being. 
And, uh, you know, it's a matter of national urgency. You know, as I speak, we have schools all over the country where um, student and teacher absences are um, at an all-time high because of COVID. And and although a lot of discourse now is around we're post-COVID, we are not post-COVID. And certainly in schools, the impacts of this will be felt for some time. Um, And I think teachers had to carry a huge load over the past couple of years. And while our magnificent medical staff and, and, you know, support staff of all kinds um, were rightly lauded for their contribution, I I don't think teachers were recognised as, in a sense, emergency workers. Mm. But that was the work they were doing. Mm. Um, They were actually not only supporting um, young people, they were supporting families. Um, You know, the, the dynamics in families suddenly in lockdown, certainly in Victoria for very long periods of time, um, the school became part of the home and the home became part of the school in ways that we've never seen before. And I, I think there has been, um, at the political level, a lack of recognition of the contribution of teachers. And so I'm not at all surprised that the, the morale is very low. And com- this is then compounded by the fact that young people are coming back to school. Again, I'm talking in the Victorian context, although it applies um, Australia-wide. Uh, that young people are coming back to school having missed sometimes, you know, 18 months, two years of uh, of on-campus, in-place education. And so I've talked to sort of year seven teachers who are saying they've got year, young people starting year seven who actually um, have... have they missed all of their, the, the sort of, um, the latter part of their primary schooling when a lot of the um, uh, social, um, cognitive um, uh, learning occurs. And so they now, um, the impact of that in terms of what is now expected of teachers, um, we are still finding our way with that. And so the work teachers are doing is um, is is hard, it's constant, It's we're in somewhat uncharted territory. And so Helen's point about really having conversations so that we are reaching out to teachers, we're acknowledging what they've, their contribution and we're supporting them to keep contributing um, in, in, uh, so that they can they can sustain um, their their career. Mm. Um, teachers teachers um, are teachers go into teaching because they have such a purpose about wanting to contribute, as Helen said. Mm. And you you ask anyone about their schooling experiences, what they remember. Ninety nine percent of people will say a teacher. Yep, grade four was um, my favourite year, Mister Hurst. I remember go. him well. <laughs> you, but see, you know his name. That's what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it does sound like teachers students and parents will be finding their way for some time mm. yet. But for now, uh, Annie and Helen, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for your time. Thanks Oh, my much, pleasure. Kat. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. And that was Dr Annie Gowing. She's a lecturer and student wellbeing specialisation leader from the University of Melbourne. And Helen Agua is the principal of Perth College, an Anglican school for girls. Some fairly strong comments coming in on the text uh, line. Thank you very much for that. Lisa from Randwick says, wellbeing is always student focused. The poor teachers never get included in being looked after, but have to be everything to students. Thanks for your comments there, Lisa. 
mean, it was interesting to hear from Helen there, unpack what they're doing at Perth College to look after uh, teacher wellbeing there. Uh, someone else has texted in saying teacher wellbeing is linked to the unsafe workplace and unsustainable workload. We're sick of hearing about ticker box wellbeing actions that do nothing to address the issues of bullying, harassment and assault of staff by students. Thank you very much for those comments. Please keep them coming in. Well, elite female cyclists will have an historic moment later this month when the eight-day Tour de France Femme, or the Tour de France for Women, kicks off in Paris. It's the first time since 1989 that women have featured in their own and the world's most famous bike race, which starts on July 24th, and that's the same day the men's race finishes. To talk us through what the women riders can expect is two-time Australian road cycling champion and SBS Tour de France commentator, Gracie Elvin. Welcome to Saturday Extra, Gracie. Thanks. It's nice to be here with you guys. This is a pretty exciting moment for female riders. Can you take us through what's led up to this moment? Why it's taken so long for the women to get their own race back? It's uh, probably going to be one of the bigger turning points for women's cycling in terms of popularity and exposure. Um, It's been building momentum really the last five to ten years in terms of getting more women's racing on live TV or at least recorded to watch in highlights. There just hasn't been a lot of women's TV covered in general in the past and there's been a huge push for you know, some equality across a whole range of races, but particularly the Tour de France. The Tour de France is not just cycling's biggest race, but it's a global event. There's people that tune in from all over the world that watch it just for that one uh, month, I guess, and they probably wouldn't watch other cycling races. So it attracts such a bigger audience Mm. than normal. And to have a women's version of that is uh, so powerful for our sport to gain, you know, a bit more traction in terms of followers and and fans and excitement. And it's just a great sport and it deserves that. It's just taken a long time to get there. Mm. There was a petition back in 2013. It was led by a woman called Catherine Bertine and she had a couple of women helping her, namely uh, Mariana Voss, one of the greatest female cyclists of all time. And that petition garnered over 100,000 signatures uh, worldwide to get a women's Tour de France, and that eventuated into having a one-day race in 2014 called La Course, and that was the first women's race to be included within that Tour de France package, and that was held in Paris on that last day of the men's tour. Uh, the women's cycling was promised that it would evolve and get larger and, and go into a multi-day tour, but it was only until this year that it actually happened. So women's cycling has been waiting since 2014 for it to go from a one-day race into a tour. So I think a lot of us were just getting a bit sceptical that it would ever happen. And I think when they finally announced it last year that it was going to be in the calendar for 2022, I think there was a bit of uh, not sure if it was really going to go ahead. But I think once they started announcing the courses and the sponsors, I think everyone was like, okay, we can really get excited about Mm. this. This is really happening. So Mm. it's a really big deal. And the Grand Depart or, you know, where they leave from is obviously Paris. Um, Having it televised, I mean, how will that impact on professional women's cycling? What will that do for the sport? 
In my opinion, and the, many people agree, is that uh, the biggest thing that can help our sport is coverage and just to have the ability to show the races in live streaming TV formats or online is much more important than, say, equal prize money to men's racing. Uh, I think that just is going to be so much better for all teams. There are some teams that just don't have the same budgets as others, and if there's equal prize money, some of the richer teams are actually the ones getting that prize money, and it's not necessarily benefiting the sport as a whole, but having coverage of races benefits the sport as a whole and all those teams because they're able to get that exposure. Uh, cycling is really relies on all of the sponsorship and a lot of it comes from companies and, and private sponsors and they need to have a logo on your jersey and to have that on TV if you're in a breakaway or if you get to go on the podium, that's part of the economy of cycling. Mm. Well, it, take me to the spectacle of it all. We know that it is eight stages now. What sort of terrain will the riders encounter? Yeah, it's going to be a long week, I think. It's uh, going to be a tough week. Eight stages is a great start. I think hopefully in the future it could go up to two weeks. But I think, you know, around that 10-day, 8 to 10-day mark is actually perfect for women's racing. It's a bit shorter. The men's tour is 21 days, which is really long. But the women, eight days, there's going to be some dynamic racing. The stages are a little bit shorter as well, and it just – I don't know, women's racing is just a bit more aggressive, a bit more exciting, a little bit more unpredictable. And I think there's going to be a whole new range of fans that are go, oh, this is actually really good. I didn't realize women's racing was like this. And especially on the, the back of the men's tour, a lot of people get those cycling withdrawals. So they'll get a whole other week of racing to watch. But <laughs> the route organizers have done a great job. As you said, it starts in Paris. And I guess that pays a bit of homage to the past women's races that have happened in Paris and it, it's great that it's on that last day of the men's tour. It's going to be a big spectacle. And then they head across. They'll stay in the northeast of France. They build towards some more hilly stages. They've actually got one stage with a lot of gravel roads in it, which always adds a bit of drama. And then by the end of the tour, they've gone into the mountains. So there's kind of a, a stage for everyone, really. There's going to be a whole range of different winners and and maybe even a different winner every day, which is going to make it really interesting. And to finish on the famous climb, the Planche de Belfi, which is actually where the men's race is finishing today. So I get to go see it today and get to scope it out for the women and hopefully send a few of my friends a few tips on that climb. I think it's going to be a very dramatic finale to the women's race. Yeah, excellent. I noticed you said that it's the it, women's riders are aggressive and unpredictable. I mean, you're a retired pro cyclist. How will that manifest? How, why are they more aggressive and more unpredictable? Well, the, those stages are just a little bit shorter in general to men's racing. Uh, and sometimes they're actually a lot shorter. Sometimes they're, they're really like half distance. So men's racing is more around the 180K, even over 200K per stage. Women's racing is more to the 100 and 150K stages. And because it's a bit shorter, they're just uh, a bit more aggressive throughout the whole stage. Whereas in men's racing, you'll see a lot of attacking early on, a breakaway forms, the peloton settles down. It's a bit more formulaic, whereas in the women's race, it's much less predictable in that way that there's 
just aggressive racing throughout the whole stage and you're just not really sure what's going to happen next. Yeah, great. And that, I guess, keeps the cyclists on their toes as well as everyone watching from around the world or on on the sidelines. You know, how important are the, the crowds that flock to the stages that, you know, shout, allay, 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 as, you know, you're cycling past? Oh, it's such a great addition to the atmosphere. Uh, back when I was racing, uh, about 10 years ago, well, I didn't retire that long ago, only a couple of years ago, but when I first started racing, some of the races, there'd be no one there and it would just you know, be the, the cows on the side in the paddock. But over the years, it's gained so much more momentum and I've been in races, especially in this, the spring classic season uh, earlier on in the year. Sometimes in Belgium, you'd get 100,000 spectators on the side of the road and for the biggest races like the Tour of Flanders, you'll get a million people out on course if it's a nice day. And I really hope for the women that they'll get some great crowds on the back of the men's tour, but I really don't doubt that they will. There's so much excitement and hype building around this tour and I think they're going to really enjoy that. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned that you're scoping out the stages, particularly um, some of the men's ones where the women's ones are are heading to. What sort of tips and tricks might you advise some of the cyclists that are participating? Oh, gosh, I could probably talk about this all day, but (laughs) I, I think just enjoy it. Like I was so grateful to have a career in cycling and just to enjoy every minute, not to wish your time away. I think sometimes you're in a lot of pain as a cyclist. It's a very tough sport. Um, But yeah, just enjoy the moment and enjoy where you are. Look around if you can. Um, it's, It's tough when you're really concentrating in the moment in the race, but we get to go to some of the most amazing places as bike riders and um, it's one of those unique sports that you're on the road all the time. Uh, you get to go from town to town and you get to go to all these funny little places that you probably would have never have gone to as a tourist. So, yeah, just just look around a bit. Um, enjoy the moment and, uh, yeah, don't take it too seriously, but but um, have some fun out there and um, you've got nothing to lose. Mm, you mentioned that it is tough. We know that the Italian pro women's cycling race, the Giro Donnay, um, will finish, I think, around 13 days before the Tour de France Femme begins. Is that recovery time enough for those those cyclists, um, given that they're both really full-on, high-class, elite events? That's a great question as well, and I think that's going to be answered, I guess, once we get to the Tour de France Femme, because I think a lot of people aren't quite sure. There's probably about, I don't know, 50-50 as a guest, riders that are doing both tours. So not everyone will do both. That Some teams have enough riders that they can split those races up. But um, I think there's going to be a lot of riders that do both. And, yeah, I'm not quite sure if that's enough time. And I think the, the Giradon has always been around this time of year. It's always been when the men's Tour de France is on. And there's been a lot of, you know, argument about whether that was ever good because there's uh, not that much coverage of the Giro anyway. But is even less because all the journalists are here at the Tour de France and everyone's glued to their TV watching the men's race instead of watching the women's race, even if they have put a broadcast out. So possibly it might be good to change the date in the future, um, put the Girodona in another part of the year if they can squeeze it in somewhere. But, yeah, for this year I think it's going to be tough for some riders and I've actually seen – a, a fair few riders already pulling out of the Giro that is still currently running to rest, just to give themselves a few more days to rest up before the Tour de France Femme begins. Mm. Well, if you can just um, be drawn to the talent that are racing in these professional teams, 
wh- who's racing? Who's competing from Australia? Who are some of the riders to watch? One of my big picks is uh, Grace Brown from Victoria. She has become one of the superstars the last couple of years in women's cycling. She's a very strong bike rider and she's quite a good all-rounder, but she has, you know, amazing engines. So she can get through quite hilly stages, but also have a very fast finish. So around the middle of the tour is where I'm going to see, look for her to win a stage or two. And we have um, Amanda Spratt from New South Wales, and she's been one of Australia's best cyclists for a very long time. Um, She is a fantastic climber, and she's going to be looking to do well in the overall general classification. So in those last few days of the tour, once they go into the mountains, I think she's going to be really aiming high to do well. So that's Grace and Amanda. How many Aussies are competing in total? Do you know? Uh, There hasn't been a start list announced yet, but I'm guessing there'll probably be around five or six, if not more. So I'm really excited for the Aussies and I'm definitely going to be tuning in just to watch them. Tuning in, setting the alarm clock, whatever it may be. It's going to be a fascinating and exhilarating time to be watching the sport. Thank you so much for joining us, Gracie. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Gracie Elvin is a two-time national road cycling champion and SBS Tour de France commentator. She's also the first Australian female rider to record a podium finish at the Tour of Flanders for women in Belgium in 2017. Well, the world is coming to terms with the shocking news that the former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has been shot dead while campaigning at a political rally in Nara, Japan. Abe was Japan's longest-serving PM and known for revitalising the nation's economy and for pushing Japan's military to take a more active role in the country's defence. Joining me to discuss is Mark Mulligan, world editor at the Australian Financial Review. Mark, thank you for joining us on Saturday Extra. You're welcome. Good morning. Best known for his economic policies, known as Arbenomics, as well as trying to shift Japan away from that pacifist position it had taken since World War II, he is being remembered as a polarising figure and was still a huge force in Japanese politics, despite not being the Prime Minister. How do you think he'll be best remembered? What will the legacies that he'll leave? Um, well, well, he was a huge figure in, in Japanese politics and um, I think that the country's in a, a bit of shock and they're just coming to terms um, with uh, what's happened. Uh, a completely unexpected event in, in, a, in a country like Japan. Um, he'll be noted, yeah, for sort of being quite pushy, trying, trying to reform the economy, trying to revive the economy after the after the uh, the shocks, the, the financial shocks uh, and the banking shock, shocks of the 90s. Um, but he was also big on the world stage um, and um, he was uh, very pragmatic when it came to dealing with different world leaders. Um, he famously uh, flew, to, uh, flew to the US as soon as uh, Donald Trump won uh, the uh, 2016 election uh, and made sure that he uh, became a friend, if not uh, a, a great, well, an ally more than a friend, I guess, of Donald Trump uh, when you realise the importance of that win. So um, this is how he's remembered. He's, uh, he's, he, was, he was a great friend of Australia. Mm. He was the initiator of the quad uh, sort of grouping of Japan, India, Australia and the US, uh, which was all about sort of regional, shoring up regional security, mainly against China, uh, and at the same time as um, sort of 
developing some sort of uh, economic architecture as well or more coordination economically because obviously the two go hand in hand. Economic mm. security equals um, uh, sort of military security, if you like. Mm. And, and is that why he's being considered most polarising with that push towards the military post, you know, that pacifism that we saw after World yeah. War II? So reinterpreting the, the sort of pacifist constitution which was imposed on Japan, obviously, after the the militarism and the expansionism of the 30s and 40s, which ended in the Pacific Campaign. Um, and uh, so he, he was more pragmatic about, well, the rise of China, if you like. He looked at that and he thought uh, it was time for Japan to... Uh, defend itself again and also engage mm. in more sort of regional um, military uh, and economic architecture at the same time. So in that sense, he, wa- he really was a, um, a politician of our times who understood the world. Mm. Um, and, and this is how he's remembered. Uh, yeah, like all politicians, he had his enemies, um, but n- not the sort of enemies who, who would uh, do something like this. No. Would, and, and, and the motivation at this stage doesn't seem to be even related well, to... His, his, his political policies. Yeah, let me ask you a bit a- about that. Yeah. I mean, the attack was extremely unusual, particularly yes. shocking, because you don't usually associate post-war Japan with violence. So what do we know so far about the shooter and, and motives? Well, it's all a bit cloudy at the moment, and even mm, experts in Japan um, are, are a little bit confused. The, the alleged... Uh, perpetrator of this himself has said that he uh, wasn't political um, and it, it makes some sort of vague reference, uh, obviously the police know more, but um, to um, Abe's um, religious affiliations. Um, no, don't ask me about those, but um, it, some sort of uh, sect within a sect or some sort of uh, political religious connection who knows? That's um, uh, always possible, of course, uh, that the, the, this individual um, had m- mental health concerns. Mm. I, I wouldn't really like to speculate, but um, it's not a straight up and down political ass- assassination. It's not someone who, uh, who loathed uh, Shinzo Abe because of what he stood for politically, as far as we know this far. Mm. Um, so this is still um, unknown. Uh, and as the days unfold, I'm sure that we'll hear uh, uh, more about that. Mark, look, thank you for that analysis there. Um, I'd like to, to ask you to stick around if that's all right. It's handy to have yeah. you here today because we've got a change of gears next uh, for The Pick. Well, it's time now for our monthly check-in of interesting books, articles, podcasts and viewing delights curated by two guests who this week are Dr Jessica Collins, Research Fellow in the Pacific Islands Program at the Lowy Institute. Good morning to you, Jessica. Thanks for having me. And Mark Mullen, World Editor at the Australian Financial Review. Hello, Mark. Uh, Good morning. Jessica, if we can start with you, what's on your bedside table at the moment? What are you reading um, when you are either having a cuppa or popping off to sleep or even in the bath? Who knows? (laughs) Sure. I've been reading Gordon Peake. It's uh, Beloved Land, Stories, Struggles and Secrets from Timor Lest. Uh, It was written back in 2013 and I just think it's such a fabulous book. It's it's one of those rare books. I I don't think I've ever um, had this in a book where uh, I've read, you know, a couple of pages and I've gone back to read it again because I just wanted to absorb 
more of it. You know, there are books where you can speed through and try and just get, you know, the sort of surface of it. But this book, I just really want to grab everything on it. Um, it's about uh, his time. Gordon Peake is a, an international relations scholar. Uh, he's a, he was doing some peacekeeping research in Timor-Leste. He was only supposed to be there for a couple of months. He ended up loving the place so much that he stayed for about four years. Uh, he married one of the local women there. Um, and he, this is the book that sort of portrays his time, his understanding there. And it's just fabulous. It traces through the sort of historical narrative of the Portuguese colonization and then goes through um, the really interesting um, complex web of relationships that help design and form um, the new modern state of Timor-Leste. So I can highly recommend this book. Mm. And do you think you were drawn to it particularly because we don't hear so much about Timor-Leste in terms of po- foreign <coughs> policy conversations as much as, say, other regions? Absolutely. This is exactly why I read this book. I just wanted to understand more about it. Um, you know, the, the, in, from a foreign policy perspective, um, the the, the uh, problem for Timor-Leste is that it sits astride the Pacific and Southeast Asia. So it sort of sits in this grey area where it's a little bit hard to categorise. And so I think that might contribute to um, the, the the problem of, um, you know, the uh, that it's not so much in the uh, national debate or in um, in the uh, foreign policy um, debate either. So, look, it's a really important uh, country to Australia. Um, we have had a lot. Um, uh, we've given a lot in terms of our aid to uh, Timor-Leste, but I think it needs to come to the conversation more. It's a really important country. Um, and, you know, one of these, one of the things about uh, Timor-Leste, which I found really interesting about this book, is that it is built, and this is much the same across Melanesia and, and Pacific Islands in general, is that it is built on a complex web of relationships. And so a lot of the characters um, that uh, or the people uh, that help build the nation, um, you know, through um, its process of really long process of independence are still around today in the political scene. And so if you really want to understand Timor-Leste, you've got to understand the people that are behind it. Mm. And I think this book really pays tribute to that. Mm. Mark Mulligan, I think you're being a little bit greedy with your books this week because you've got <laughs> two on the go at the moment. Uh, Barbarian Days by William Finnegan. It's a... Well, I think it would probably be naive to say it's a coming-of-age surfing story. It's much more than that. It's a lot more than that. And um, I was talking to someone about this book um, because, uh, well, first I came to it late. Apparently he won the Pulitzer Prize for Autobiography in 2015, 2016. Um, don't quote me. But, um, and uh, I've, I've gone around and told people I've just I finally found this book um, about surfing, ostensibly. I mean, it's about a lot more than that. About it's about this the amazing life of William Finnegan, who just happens to be a beautiful writer, uh, regardless of his subject matter. And uh, and was saying, oh yeah, yeah, that was a big that was a big deal back back then. Um, anyway, I came to it late. Uh, it was recommended to me. You know, I downloaded it, and I, I couldn't put it down. But I always find with um, books that I, I really love and and and, and are devouring, that I get to a point where I don't want it to end. So uh, I'm a little bit more um, sparse with my reading and I'll just read a couple of pages each evening so that I can prolong the joy of it. Mm. Um, but, yeah, what, what this book does, um, and it's the sort of writing that I most love and, and I have a stab at my, myself every now and then when I get the chance, 
It's something that, that weaves together great passions while telling a story. So in, in this case, it's, it's, it's really about surfing, but it's more than just about his own surfing adventures and his own travels around the world, his own pioneering uh, when it comes to surfing. He was, he was you know, one of the early surfers in some of the, the more far, further flung um, Pacific Islands. Same with Madeira um, off the coast of Africa, which is, again, talking about Portuguese uh, it's not a colony, it's part of Portugal. Um, and um, so through that you see his travels, you see his relationships with different people, with his own family with his own, and the various partners. But what really, uh, what's made an impression on me with this book is that just his description of sitting out there, and this is something that I've, like, I've experienced, obviously not at his mm. level because he, he's quite an accomplished um, surfer, sitting out there and working out what the next wave's going to do. Mm. or studying maps and working out when the next swell is going to hit, how it's going to hit, the angles, the science, the seafloor, how that's going to influence the next wave. Mm. Um, so, so a friend of mine, when I, as I said, I was ranting about this book and I'm doing that right now, but um, <laughs> he, he, she said, oh, yes, he's the first person to intellectualise surfing. Oh, there you I go. I think that's a fair enough description. Yeah. Uh, and well, so it sounds like you don't necessarily have to be a surfer really no way, to enjoy no. it. But what about, um, what about your second book? It couldn't be in more contrast, really. <laughs> well, this is another one of my my my, my reading. I, I don't have a pattern when it comes to reading. It's either I'm, I'm wandering around at the office and I'll just grab whatever I, I see and say, oh, this looks interesting, and then I'll, I'll either be disappointed or engaged enough to continue. Um, or I set out and, and I look for books that uh, people have talked about. In this case, um, it's, uh, it's Aaron Patrick, uh, who's a colleague, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he's, he's, he's a perfect writer, uh, but both a journalist, and, and he writes quite a lot about politics. And his latest iteration is Ego, Malcolm Turnbull and the Liberal Party's Civil War. Um, so, yeah, a very different book. Um, and I suppose it's, it's the hypothesis, and I believe he wrote it um, during lockdown, so he didn't go crazy. Um, and um, he, he, the hypothesis is that... Um, that Malcolm Turnbull, Malcolm Turnbull uh, disagrees with this, obviously, that Malcolm Turnbull sort of deliberately set out to undermine mm. um, Scott Morrison's uh, mandate, his, his term as uh, Prime Minister of mm. Australia, mm. Mm, because he was so peeved at the way that he'd uh, won this miracle election in, mm. uh, in 2019, which he wasn't supposed to win. Um, and it was the clash of two very different personalities, if you like, um, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, a man of the world, erudite, um, very sort of clear-spoken and, and high-minded, uh, and whereas Scott Morrison's more of sort of a man of the people, a man of the, the suburbs, and um, it's just the, the clash of these two uh, mm. individuals and how um, uh, Turnbull, mm-hmm. sorry, um, um, how, um, yeah, Malcolm Turnbull set out to actually undermine Scott Morrison's time and time in office from the sidelines, if you like, sniping yeah, and, and the role of social media in that. Oh, that's it. Uh-huh. That's an inter- really interesting yeah. facet to it as well. Yeah. Um, Jessica, Pacific Wayfinder. If we can move along now to podcasts, tell me about that. Sure. So Pacific Wayfinder is um, uh, run, is uh, run by the Australia Pacific Security College and it's focused on security issues in the Pacific, um, but it's broader than just hard security issues. So it covers gender, health security, climate change, uh, social media and so on. So um, I really loved 
um, this series, um, but there are a couple in there that really stuck out to me. And the, the first, it was a crypto and blockchain in the Pacific um, series, there were two of them, um, and Ben Bohane talked with uh, Tongan politician Lord Fusatua and Josh Hallwright, who's from Oxfam, and they talked about um, uh, cryptocurrency in the Pacific. And, you know, again, this is something that isn't discussed here in Australia, that, you know, cryptocurrency <clears throat> is something that's um, becoming a very real reality across the Pacific. Palau uh, just um, introduced a US-backed digital currency or plans to bring in US-backed digital currency. Um, and Tonga is very seriously considering uh, bringing in Bitcoin as legal tender. Mm. Um, we know El Salvador did that almost a year ago now. Mm, mm, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, this has very real security implications. Um, and according to Lord Fusatua, uh, it has uh, civil rights implications as well. Um, the reason they're going down the, the path of Bitcoin is because it's not lockable and it's not traceable. So then, it, you know, it really respects the civil rights of uh, people in Tonga. Um, they've had uh, they've had a lot of support from people in the parliament. Um, I think nine lords will vote as a block on this, and I think he's got the support of that. There's another two MPs that um, that are supportive of it too, and they just need uh, one more to be able to get this passed. So mm. this is a very real reality, um, mm. and they see this as a, a way to be able to bring more money into the households um, uh, of the households that are particularly doing it tough during the um, economic recession that was caused by the pandemic. Yeah, it's an interesting interesting one, the cryptos, isn't it? I mean, it's seen by some as an inflation hedge, um, but it's also fallen 70% from its highs. So anyway, that's a that's a watch this space, I yes, think. Um, speaking of watching, Mark, you've just finished viewing Pistol, which is a six-part series <laughs> that follows Sex Pistols guitarist Steve Jones. Tell us a bit about that. And for the uninitiated, what should they expect from the Sex Pistols? Well, um, um, I haven't finished watching it. In fact, I'm just up to the third. Um, uh, yeah, I'm up to the third episode. So the okay. first episode does focus on Steve Jones. Um, I've forgotten his name now. I shouldn't have. They're the guy who uh, directed and wrote and directed um, uh, Transporting. Uh, anyway, uh, it's the yes. same. Um, yeah, sorry, uh, it's escaped me Saturday morning. But... Um, he, uh, yeah, so it's an interesting look. Uh, my partner's very critical of it. She's a music writer, but um, that it's it's sort of a bit too stylized, a bit too Danny Boyle. Mm. Danny Boyle, mm. thank you mm. very much. Thank mm. you. Um, and but it's it's rather than just being a, a documentary about you know, how the Sex Pistols were formed and and how they sort of conquered the or they they, they changed the face of music very quickly and they had run-ins with the record companies and all the rest of it, all the well-documented stuff. They try and take a, 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 a more, a sort of, not an abstract view, but a little more an oblique view and they focus on individuals within the band and, and they're a little bit um, liberal with the, the actual facts, I think. Um, and uh, so they develop these characters and some of the characters around them. But it starts with Steve Jones. We've now moved on to Johnny Rotten, Johnny Lydon, and... Um, uh, and just the way his character develops, and how the 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 the, the band develops, and the music develops, and, and and the following starts to grow, and and their impact on the, the or, or or the way the band itself is a byproduct of what was going on in Britain at the times. Mm. Um, 
it's interesting seeing what's going on in Britain at the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 you, you could maybe draw a few parallels. Mm. Um, but I like it. Uh, other people are critical because it looks a bit like Hollywood or it looks a bit like, um, you know, it's, it's too glamorous for, for a period which was actually quite a, a bit dark and a bit sort of grungy. Mm. Um, uh, but I quite like it because of the, the, the way the characters are developed mm, in it. And, mm. and again, there is a, a little bit of, uh, there's quite a lot of leeway there with the, what actually happened. Yeah. But the, the, the thread of truth is there. And, um, and and also the way the, the music sort of developed. Yeah, oh, it sounds it sounds fascinating. Jessica, we've yeah. just got a minute to go. I, if you can just let me know what you've been watching, even though you're about two years behind the behind the times, I think. <laughs> I am, but I've got four children, so my opportunities <laughs> to watch TV are very, very few, but um, stateless. I absolutely loved it. So mm. I've got a background in um, researching with refugees and um, I just found this series absolutely so powerful and I think this is a really important medium to be able to um, build people's awareness of the complex lives that go into, um, <clears throat> you know, for asylum seekers. I think it's a really fabulous uh, series to watch. You really get drawn into all the character development. Again, that's really important to this kind of stuff. Mm. And I think, yeah, it's... it's um, yeah. yeah, I had the pleasure Stories of watching like it. Yeah, it's a great yep. great story, great cast as well. Uh, Absolutely. But Jessica and Mark, thank you both so much for joining us for The Pick. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. Thank you very much. And that was Dr Jessica Collins, Research Fellow in the Pacific Islands Program at the Lowy Institute, and Mark Mulligan, World Editor at the Australian Financial Review. Now, before we leave you today, as part of NADOC Week, Spinifex Gum will bring together the sound of Marilia, a choir of young Indigenous women and girls from far north Queensland and the Torres Strait. Here's a little of Spinifex Gum singing their 2021 song, No Longer There. And that's it for Extra with me, Catherine Robinson, on ABC RN. Thanks so much for your company. Bye for now. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.